Unbroken, the Paralympics and its record is sponsored by HireUp, Australia's largest NDIS-registered platform for people with disability to find and manage their own support workers. To find out more, head to hireup.com.au. That's H-I-R-E-U-P I'm Paralympic swimmer Annabelle Williams. I've been the Vice President of Paralympics Australia, the Legal Counsel of the Australian Olympic Committee and the Chair of Paralympics Australia's Athletes Commission. This is Episode 2 of Unbroken, the Paralympics and its record. Welcome back. The incredibly successful Paralympics finished tonight and there'll be quite a few names that linger on. Siobhan Payton is one of those after her record six gold medals. Peyton, who has an intellectual disability, last night displayed enormous strength to fight out the toughest race of her career for a record sixth gold medal at these games. Don't really know how I'm going to cope with all this fame and publicity. And less than an hour there were many highlights at the Sydney 2000 Paralympic Games. That moment was one of them. But shortly afterwards, something happened that cast a shadow over the Paralympic world for years. Hi, my name is Siobhan Payton. I'm 39 years old and I was Paralympian of the Year for 2000 and won six gold medals individually. Siobhan competed in swimming's intellectually impaired classification. It's a brain mental defunction. It occurs at birth. Uh, it could also occur if you have a car accident and st- stuff like that. But mine was due to a lack of oxygen at birth, so yes. It affects my everyday life because I'm slower at grasping things, mentally challenged. Some daily living skills are hard to grasp and take full on adult life. To learn. Our producer Sarah Allerley visited Siobhan in her Canberra home where she lives with her mum and two dogs. When I was younger, I had to swim because of my joints because I had mild Ellis Danilos syndrome. So Siobhan has an intellectual disability, which is how she qualified for the Paralympics in 2000, but she also has EDS. EDS affects the body's connective tissue which, as Siobhan describes, means her ankles and knees are weaker than the rest of her body and her limbs are hyperflexible. So the professor basically told me to swim. So we swim, I did. And my coach noticed me being slow in the uptake of grasping the drills and stuff. And that's how I was introduced to the Paralympic world, was via my swim coach. So Siobhan was classified as an intellectually impaired swimmer. She was 13. And just a few years later, she swam at the Sydney Paralympics. I heard the words go, go, go from the crowd and I just went. Touched first. Couldn't believe it. One of the happiest memories I have of touching first, of winning gold. How long did it take you to register that you'd won? It took me a while because everybody was screaming, yeah, yeah, good on you. It's like, what do you mean? You won? Holy sh... 
baloney. I won. How did it feel to win the gold medals? Exciting, real, making me feel like I was a true champion. Very excitable at 17 of age. Were you surprised? Mm, only by one, I was surprised at one, but the others, or maybe two, because I thought I lost the 50 fly, got silver, but I beat the chick, the English chick, by one one hundredth of a second, so and it was a lousy finish. Siobhan Patton was the golden girl of Australian Paralympic swimming in 2000. It should have been just the start. But instead, her life took a very different direction. I didn't find out until the day that we were doing the Canberra Parade and there was whispers on the bus that the Spanish basketballers cheated. Nobody was telling me what was going on. Was it true? Was it not true? Once I found out it was true, very upset, very angry... Siobhan had just found out that most of the gold medal winning Spanish team in intellectually impaired basketball had deceitfully feigned an intellectual impairment. They had cheated by pretending they had an intellectual disability, exploiting the classification system in an unimaginably egregious manner. And Bob's your uncle, it was very disturbing that someone could, some people could just do that to line their pockets. Siobhan was legitimately in her classification, but the scandal tarnished the credibility of the entire intellectually impaired Paralympic community. A decision was made to scrap intellectual impairment as a classification entirely. So IPC banned us, like the whole intellectual disability through all the sports. Basically, we were guinea pigs with hope, saying that we might be in 2004 Paralympics and when that didn't fruition until 2009, we were very angry and very devastated because we all thought that nobody wanted us. Well, this is what I thought, that nobody wanted us. Siobhan never competed in another Paralympics. Siobhan was one of many intellectually disabled athletes around the world whose sporting careers were cut short by the Spanish basketball team's deplorable cheating. It took until London 2012 for the International Paralympic Committee, the IPC, to reinstate the intellectually impaired classification at a Paralympic Games. I was hospitalised for six weeks with depression and anxiety. A lot of different therapists and a lot of different medication to find the right one. Now I have a great team behind me, so I'm on the road to recovery, according to them. When Sarah visited Siobhan, she and her support worker were about to go to the local pool. Easing back into swimming is part of her support plan. Siobhan rummages around in a drawer to find her medals. Now I feel that I'm great with my medals, but before I just could not look at them, I felt disgusted. So when the Spanish basketball team cheated, there was a big media coverage and I would be the face of the intellectual disability group as such because I won six individual gold medals. 
And I just couldn't look at them because I felt I was depressed. Siobhan's name and face kept featuring in media stories and she felt the association cast a negative shadow on her medals. But the feeling of winning gold stays with her. On the wall in her dining room is a framed photo of the Athens 2004 Australian Olympic swim team. In it, Siobhan's sister Sarah, also a champion swimmer, is at the Athens Olympics with fellow swimmers Ian Thorpe, Michael Klim and Grant Hackett. Was she younger or older? Younger. So you might have inspired her then? I hope so. When you got back into the pool a few months ago, how long was it since you'd swam? Well, since I was 22, I'm 39, quite a long time. So you literally had not swam in that time? Yes, I had not swam in that time. It's taken a few tumbles, but I got into the pool, at least I'm in the pool. Haven't started actual swimming yet, I'm just walking. Do you want me to come in? Siobhan's support worker Tracy arrives to take her to the pool. You want ready to go swimming? Yes, just give me a few seconds. Siobhan has been struggling with mental health since her swimming career came to a sudden devastating end. So walking in the water is actually really good because it takes the weight off, it takes a lot of strain off, but she's mighty strong in the shoulders, so mm. let's keep doing that. That's why we've got the weights. Yeah, good one. All right. And then I've got leg weights and body weights for when we get a bit more advanced. <laughs> good one. <laughs> I lose that to body weight. I think there might be a spare lane for us to walk in. When I first started walking with Siobhan, one of the things that the psychologist was working on with Siobhan was getting out back in public. Siobhan didn't like leaving the house and going out, and so now not only is she getting out in public, being with people and out with me, she's also getting back in the water, which was a big deal too. So she's doing two things at once at the moment, getting out and doing stuff. So we're all very proud of her. As she waits, my darling. You ready? Yes. Siobhan's story illustrates the human impact that decisions over classification can have. More than two decades since Sydney 2000, the classification system is still under review. Its purpose is to group athletes with similar impairments so the competition is fair. But as swimmer Tim Hodge told Sarah, there are ongoing rumours that athletes intentionally misrepresent their disability during classification to gain an unfair advantage kind of built into the system at the moment is the ability for what they call intentional misrepresentation where athletes might exacerbate their disability to get a lower classification and then that will effectively increase their chances of winning a medal because they're competing against people with greater disabilities and similar to doping or drug drug doping there's ways to mitigate that and ways to prevent it but at the moment Talking about people in the wrong classification is a bit of a a taboo subject in a lot of places because the classification system, while we all go through it, but it is quite secretive because everyone has their own medical issues, medical disabilities, stuff like that. And the classification requires everyone to go through and uh, investigate all those medical impairments and stuff like that. And short of everyone making their medical records public, unfortunately, there's not a lot we can do in terms of oversight. And some people, their conditions do genuinely change and they do change classification. And other people intentionally misrepresent themselves. And it's hard to determine who's 
intentionally misrepresenting themselves and who's genuinely, like, their condition has changed. And it's up to IPC and their classification system to kind of weed out the people who are intentionally misrepresenting themselves and then who are, are genuinely changing classification. And it's not been successful so far, I believe. What have you heard directly or, you know, heard rumours of or even experienced yourself in terms of classification in those sort of grey areas? Yes, so I've heard of instances of athletes attempting to gain the classification system through multiple different methods. We never know who it is. Often it's kept very secret or anonymised and stuff like that. So IPC can do their own investigation or things like that. Again, the IPC is the International Paralympic Committee, the organisation that governs the Games and sets the rules. You, you always hear rumours and stuff like that. Yeah, I've heard rumours of Australian athletes misrepresenting themselves in multiple different sports. And unfortunately, there's, there's not a really a way to confirm this. The only way is to, to pass your concerns on to higher-ups and hope that something gets done about it. Sometimes an athlete might brag that they went down a classification or something like that, and that can be a kind of a clear indicator that they possibly intentionally misrepresented themselves. But again, it is hard to distinguish between intentional misrepresentation and simple like change in impairments. A lot of the time, athletes don't want to like, get other athletes in trouble. So we might, behind the scenes, say, oh, so-and-so's intentionally misrepresenting themselves. They're more or less cheating. But a lot of the time, without significant hard evidence, which is extremely hard to come by. Have you ever been in a, in a race in Australia or overseas where you've felt like or you've heard that someone, that you're competing against someone who's maybe misrepresented themselves on purpose or just seems like they're in the wrong classification? Yes, I have. I have raced with people who have seemed like they're in the wrong classification. But unfortunately, with Paralympic sport, it's hard to tell exactly who has what disability and stuff like that, especially if they've got impairments like cerebral palsy and stuff like that. Like You might think in the back of your head, he shouldn't be in this class, she shouldn't be in this class. But in the end, it's not up to you. Things have to be corroborated and multiple people have to say it. What about coaches, like coaches encouraging? Yes, there is, especially with younger athletes who are a little less aware of stuff. Sometimes coaches might say they can do like hard training beforehand to exacerbate some of these symptoms. It, it really depends on what type of disability. So obviously being an amputee, I can't really exacerbate my symptoms without taking any more of my leg off. There's some known methods of exacerbating symptoms of like CP. CP is cerebral palsy. Have you heard about that in swimming or in the other sports? I've heard about it in swimming and other sports. So in, in swimming, if you're a CP athlete, for example, some of the easiest ways to make the CP appear more severe is to train really hard beforehand prior to classification or to do things like ice baths, which obviously make the muscles tighter and with CP can cause the symptoms to become more severe. And this whole involved system it makes it a little bit harder to be able to do those spot checks. With drug testing, you weigh in a cup and they send it off the lab, it gets tested every now and again. Whereas classification, unfortunately, I don't know how spot checks can be done without a huge involved process. As athletes, we might look on pull deck and say, 
someone shouldn't be in that classification. They're, they're too able-bodied. They're, they've got more limbs than everyone else, things like that. But we don't know. They might have a few spine or they might have other things. And classifiers could be open to the same judgment, the same bias, without access to medical records. What Tim talks about isn't new. When I was on the Australian Paralympic team, I heard athletes being advised to take cold showers before classification, which would mean they couldn't perform at their best during the assessment and, as a result, might receive a lower classification in an easier-to-win category. There is a lot of work being done to identify and weed out intentional misrepresentation, but I wonder if we'll ever be able to really fix it. I'm not sure what can realistically be done to totally eradicate it. Kate McLaughlin is the chef de mission, in effect, the team boss for the Paris Paralympics. Her main role at Paralympics Australia is head of games and international engagement. I think classification is something which is continuing to improve. It's never going to be perfect. You know, athletes with disabilities are all 100% different to each other. You can't put everyone into one box and say they're exactly the same. So there are limitations to classification. The system is being, you know, it's far more evidence-based than it's ever been and will continue to be more and more evidence-based, which is going to help. I think the IPC are doing their best to make sure that the classification system is, is as robust as it possibly can be. We run our, our national classification system within Australia. But yeah, classification's a tricky one. It's it's never going to be perfect, but I think as long as we recognise that there's continual pr- improvements that need to be made to tweak it, to try and make it as fair as possible. Yes, it's never going to be perfect, but how do the Paralympics and how does Paralympics Australia ensure that the credibility of the Paralympics going forward? I think we probably need to invest more in classification and I think the Australian sports system needs to recognise that classification is the cornerstone of Paralympic sport. If there was something similar in Olympic sport that was so critically important to make sure that it was fair for athletes and meant that athletes had access to sport then I think it would be prioritised. Classification came up a lot in our conversations with people while making this documentary. When Sarah went to Tasmania to talk to Paralympics historian Tony Nah, he also brought it up. As long as people compete, they'll cheat. Classification is an issue that just absolutely haunts Paralympic sport and still has a long way to go to be satisfactorily resolved. Tony worked for Paralympics Australia from 2000 until 2020. There's multiple events in the 100 metres athletics for men and the reason is that athletes are divided according to their level of impairment to make it as fair as possible. So you won't have a person in a wheelchair competing against a person who's missing their hand, for example. But that means that when you're putting people into classes, there's always borders or edges where people could be in one class where they might be uncompetitive, but if they're in a different class, they might be more competitive. And, of course, people are looking to be as competitive as possible and have the best possible chance. Tony says the classification process is far from an exact science. There are attempts to make it as exact as possible and you have very, very experienced people doing classification. They don't always get it right and if athletes make it very difficult for them and there are ways to make it very difficult for them, then that can be unfair as well. What about coaches making it difficult too? Because there has been reports of coaches encouraging athletes to make it difficult for the classifiers. 
Yeah, well, you know, as Paralympic sport becomes more desirable to win, then it's more desirable for everyone to win, you know, not just coaches, but administrators, everyone, you know, gets kudos and gets funding from results. And if results bring funding, it's the same in able-bodied sport, it's the same in almost any human activity. There are a group of people who will cheat. As long as Paralympic sport's been played, there have been suspicions of people cheating, there have been people cheating. Tony says another issue with classification is that it's confusing for the audience when athletes don't look equally matched, even when they are. So if you're watching a swimming event and you see a person who's got one arm and, and another person looks as if they're, um, they have no disability and another person obviously has cerebral palsy and they're all in the same race and you say, well, how is that fair? I think one of the challenges of Paralympic sport is just... Um, to explain the classification system in conjunction with events. So if people who know nothing about Paralympic sport are watching events, that there is an explanation of the classification system and what it means. When you were working with Paralympics Australia, did you hear about misrepresentation and classification or cheating going on in Australia? I mean, I know of cases where people have changed their lives and changed the way they interact with others for the benefit of their you know, participation in sport. And did they actually go to the Paralympics? You hear rumours. <laughs> so, yes, you hear rumours about people. Uh, we're doing 200, so we've just done some standing starts. So from a... Paralympian Angie Ballard has been wheelchair racing for 30 years. Sarah met her at the training track one very chilly Canberra morning. Later, Angie explained another nuance and challenge with classification. Disabilities are wide and varied. I give the example of the T52 classification. So T means track, so it's track racing, and 52 means a wheelchair racer. And in the 52 level, it's someone with impairment in four limbs. So originally this class was invented for quadriplegics. So a quadriplegic is someone that has a higher spinal cord injury and has limitations on their hand and arm function as well as their legs. When you acquire a spinal cord injury as a quadriplegic, you have temperature control issues, you stop sweating. So that means when you're in really high heat, you, the body gets hot but it doesn't cool itself. So you just get hotter and hotter. Quadriplegics also have trouble with their blood pressure and heart rate. They won't go up as an average person's does. So one of the things that's happened with classification in a few years is to include more people in that class. But so now you're getting people in that class that have impairments in four limbs, but they can sweat and their heart rate can go to 180 as opposed to 140 or something like that. So you're putting people against each other that maybe don't match up and that becomes more pronounced say if we choose to hold the t52 100 meters in the middle of the day in the highest heat in tokyo all of a sudden part of your field is affected way worse than the other part of your field because one can sweat and one cannot why have they changed that that came about i believe about being more inclusive so some of these people that have disabilities that affect them in all four limbs i'm the class above they probably can't compete effectively, fairly in my class. So they get moved into the quad class, but then there's other issues there. So the important issue here is like, how do we maintain the integrity of and that fairness within these classes and opportunities for people, even though there's 
quite a lot of nuance that needs to be taken into account. And that a lot of that, I think, sometimes requires that feedback and that that um, feedback of the people that are experiencing this and that ability to take on criticism and fix things. Can you tell me about your classification and, and what is required to fit that classification? Okay, so I'm a T53. So in the wheelchair classes, there's four classes, 51, 52, 53, 54. The higher the number, the more function you have. So in the 54 class, you might have some leg amputees, very functional paraplegics, maybe some people that have had polio or something like that, so that they're walking but probably not running kind of territory. So they might use a wheelchair or they might walk a little bit. That's that class. I'm the class below. I have full function of my arms and my upper body, like my pecs and shoulders and things, but I have some limited function of my abdominals. And that, with racing, being able to use your abdominals to sit up in the chair, which I can't do, so once I'm in that tipped over position, I can't lift my body back up. So if I could do that, I could use that to add power to my push. So that's sort of the big difference between 53s and 54s. When we move into the 52s, it's all four limbs affected. And then the 51s are actually generally down to just having their biceps. I also think it's really important to remember that at Paralympics, not every classification gets to go. Not every classification gets to do the distance or the event that they want to do. And that actually changes opportunities for people. I'm really fortunate. I get, I've had events at every Games. Sometimes the events for a particular classification are changed from one Games to the next. So by not having an event at the Games, there's no support, there's no funding, there's perhaps no coaching. So it kind of puts you on the outer again. And so that's one of the things that actually is a struggle sometimes too for inclusion because you might have an event this Games or someone might have an event at Tokyo and now it's not on the program in Paris. So what is that person meant to do? Like, do they stop being an athlete? Do they change events? If they change events, are they going to be any good at that other event? Like, we wouldn't ask, you know, some of our top runners to go suddenly do pole vault or something because that just doesn't make sense. In athletics at the Paralympic Games, it's not just the male and the female race with rounds. It's the males and the females and about 20 classifications that need to run. So logistically, there's a lot to do and not enough time to do it in. So not everyone gets a bite of the cherry. This classification business is rife with challenges. So I was fortunate to ask the person at the very top of the Paralympic movement about them. Brazilian Andrew Parsons is the president of the International Paralympic Committee, known as the IPC. It's in the middle of a major review into the classification system. I met with Andrew in France, where the Games are going to be next year. Please forgive the quality of the recording. Without our producer, I failed to plug the microphone in properly. It's a very robust process. It's taking more than three years because, of course, classification is the foundation of the Paralympic movement. Some people points of classification as our Achilles heel. And uh, uh, I don't agree at all. I think classification is what makes the Paralympic movement possible. It's super challenging because we are trying to do something that not even medicine does, which is to classify sometimes human beings with similar levels of impairment and the effect that this impairment has on the performance of particular sport. Why it's taking so long, three years? because we're doing rounds of consultation. So from athletes to the National Paralympic Committee, scientific community, 
or experts, classifiers in the field, lawyers, you know, there, there is a legal, there are legal implications in all these processes. It's not only, you know, about putting athletes in categories. A, a wrong decision here or there can have a dramatic effect on lives of human beings. And this needs to be addressed in the code, for example. And still, we have people in our own movement who don't understand classification. So I think we also have to have in mind that classification is not only to be consumed by the Paralympic movement, but also the external movement, meaning media, sponsors, governments, funding agencies. People always say to me, you know, I have one arm and I competed against people with one leg. And people always used to say, but how is that fair? And I've always found the best way of explaining it is that classification isn't intended to make sure that everyone looks the same. It's trying to make sure that we all have the same level of ability in the water and people respond to that. But classification has become a really significant topic in Australia. And as you said, it is fundamental to the Paralympic movement. And it also has the potential to undermine the movement. Intentional misrepresentation is an integrity matter in the same way that doping and match fixing and all of those other issues are. But this one goes to the core of the movement. As a lawyer, it also occurs to me that the you know, Paralympic Australia or the International Paralympic Committee, there is a real issue with proving cases of intentional misrepresentation. Do you think that the ability to prove cases of intentional misrepresentation is sufficient to properly address the issue in the sport? So to me, these are two different things. Of course, we know about coaches that they try to instruct athletes to do this or to that before classification assessment. But if they do the same during competition, no, then what's the point? So I think two different issues here. Okay, so you think that the element of in-competition observation is the crucial aspect of the evidence collection, I guess, because you think that the uh, classifiers would be able to tell that if during classification they were not putting in the same effort or their times were substantially different to in-competition, it would demonstrate that they were intentionally misrepresenting. I think it's an important element. It's not only let's, you know, let's wait and let's hope, actually, that during competition the classifiers will be able to observe. We cannot do that. We need to be very strong in the administration part of it. Okay, so in theory, I could imagine a situation where an athlete might intentionally misrepresent or, you know, have cold shower or whatever, and then if the competition where they're being observed is not the Paralympics, potentially they might swim more slowly or run more slowly or whatever and sacrifice their performance in that competition because it's not the Paralympic Games. But you're saying that they are observed at competitions from then on and, yes, the Paralympic Games, surely no one is going to risk or, you know, swim more slowly, run more slowly than they than they can. So is, is, is that kind of what you're saying? You know, it, it's not just one particular competition where they're observed. They're observed from then on. Yeah, that's why you have, when you see classifiers after the classification assessment period in a swimming meet, for example, or a swimming world championship, you see the classifiers observing every race. Yeah. In every sport, you have athletes, coaches, families pointing their fingers and say, look, this athlete is in the wrong class, he's in the right class. Um, well, we need to make sure 
is that there is a system that works and, and that the classification systems in the different sports, uh, they are robust enough. Of course, the artists who are borderliners, as we call them, they are the tricky ones. Yeah. Because normally, if they are in the lower class, they will be very competitive. If they go to the higher class, then they will be less competitive. But this is part of the Paralympic movement. And again, we cannot have one class per athlete. Rapid advancements in technology could also impact classification. Changes in prosthetics, wheelchairs, even artificial intelligence could all pose dilemmas for those overseeing the classification system. Paralympian Dan Michelle is a medal-winning boccia player. Boccia is played by people with more severe disabilities. Dan uses an electric wheelchair with a robotic arm, which he can't use during competition. Even with, 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 with me and my classification with BC3 with the ramp, I'm not even allowed to use my arm, like the robot arm, to... So I, I have to be the last person to touch the ball before it goes down the ramp. And to do that, I use, like, a mouth pointer in my mouth. I hold it, and it's got, like, a long telescopic pointer thing on it that actually adjusts so it meets the ball, and then I push the ball off. So that's how I do it. But I'm not even allowed to use my robotic arm to, like, touch the ball to make it go, so I have to use something else. They want it to be, I think, like, the person's own physical propulsion that causes the ball to go so you're not allowed to you know for example if I was in a manual wheelchair or whatever and like I had a pointer on my head or something and that was on the ball it would have to be my own physical exertion to make it happen. I think I think the reality is the classification system in every sport is regularly changed and updated and I think it will be very interesting to see how technology comes into it. And I think that it will become part of the conversation at least and it'll be a headache for classifiers and people who draft classification systems over the next decade or so in every sport, not just Paralympic sports, in every sport. But in particular, I think it would be very, it would be fascinating to see how it may impact a sport like boccia. Yeah, the questions are going to be asked and I would hate to be a classifier. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me too. On the next episode of Unbroken, the Paralympics and its record, we'll look at money and the media and how access to both continues to change the landscape of the Paralympics and how that evolution affects the broader disability community. Unbroken, the Paralympics and its record is hosted by me, Annabelle Williams. The series producer and executive producer is Sarah Allerley. Research is by Kylie Gray and sound engineering by Isabella Tropiano. Andrew Thomas is the commissioning editor for Higher Up, which brings you this series. Thanks to Network 10 for use of its archive. That's great. Yay. Support where I'm in control, but can get help if I need it. Disability support should be more than just a website. It should be people who help you live your life your way. Higher Up, disability support as it should be. Visit higherup.com.au.